Welcome to a bonus episode of Outlines. The following was first written and released for Patreon, and I'm making it available to everyone now, in the hopes that you might be tempted to sign up and hear the other exclusive episodes, available only at www.patreon.com forward slash the outlines podcast. This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some listeners may find distressing. So as always, discretion is advised. In the middle of the Essex countryside, there once lay a long, continuous stretch of road known as the A604. By 1997, the road had been completely detrunked and renumbered, but before that it snaked its way from Barton Seagrave on the outskirts of Kettering in Northamptonshire, through the heart of Essex and all the way to the port of Harwich. It's on a section of the old A604 between Halstead and Ridgewell, a stretch of road littered with small old-fashioned villages and wide open fields, that today's case begins. It was around 8.30 in the morning, on Tuesday the 3rd of January 1961, when a building labourer named Sidney Frank Ambrose, who'd stopped by the side of the road on a horseshoe-shaped stretch known as Oka Hill, spotted something on the steeply sloping banks of a nearby ditch. The place where Sidney and his work colleague, 16-year-old Robin Hyde, pulled over was a point just before the village of Ridgewell, commonly used as a lay-by. Speaking about his discovery, Sidney told the newspapers, We had just stopped, and as I walked onto the grass, I saw this body in a ditch. It was a terrific shock. I was quite shaken. The body was half concealed under a bush, described variously and romantically as blackberry or wild rose. As he looked closer, he discovered the body to be that of a young woman, who appeared to be between the ages of 18 and 20. She wore only a white blouse and black skirt with no stockings, shoes or coat. Closer examination revealed that the labels had been removed from her clothing and that her dark hair had been haphazardly sheared short. The woman lay on her back with her head, arms and immaculately red manicured fingers in the three inches of rainwater at the bottom of the steep ditch. She bore no sign of obvious injury except for some scratch marks around her neck. Sydney and Robin immediately raced to Ridgewell to raise the alarm and returned accompanied by the local policeman. It wasn't long before men from the Essex CID, led by Detective Superintendent Jack Barkway and Detective Inspector Harry Burden, also descended onto the scene. I have to confess that I've always had something of an interest in Detective Superintendent Ernest Jack Barkway. He played a prominent role in the investigation into the murder of Mary Creek, whose case I briefly covered earlier on the podcast, and I've since been researching for a book project. In the summer of 2019, I was lucky enough to speak to Superintendent Barkway's son, Roger, about his father's work, and Roger was in turn kind enough to loan me a series of newspaper clippings which had been saved by Jack Barkway himself. Some of the clippings are personal, records of his achievements in the force, most notably his promotion to the head of the CID, 
and some are to do with the cases he worked on. A missing boy from Jaywick and, most notably, a series of yellowed clippings glued to the sturdy, hole-punched, slightly aged paper saved by Jack Barkway, presumably at the time of their release. These clippings are all from this case, every one on the discovery and investigation into the murder of the woman in the lay-by. Amongst his collection is a photograph taken at the scene. The paper backing on which it's stuck has number two, written in chunky pen in the top corner. Then there is the headline, Where the Essex Girl Died and a small glued piece on the left-hand side which identifies the image as being from the Daily Sketch on Wednesday the 4th of January 1961. The image itself shows a large white tarpaulin over which four men in winter gear peek. On the other side of the screen, presumably facing the body and the ditch in which it lay, are three men, an unidentified police officer, Jack Barkway in the middle, and one finger pointed behind the screen, Home Office pathologist Dr Francis Camps. Dr Camps should be a familiar name to anyone who has listened to my episodes on the murder of Linda Smith or Anne Noblet, or indeed anyone who has more than a passing interest in crimes from this period. The post-mortem was carried out 14 miles away at Braintree Hospital, where Dr Camps soon ascertained that the woman's death had been due to asphyxia, the scratch marks on her neck and a few bruises on her left arm being the only outward sign of injury. Despite Detective Constable Eric Mitchell and policewoman Una Francis from Braintree visiting the scene to see if they could identify the woman, it wasn't until later in the evening of January the 3rd that her identity would become known. It transpired that the woman's parents had last seen their daughter on December the 31st, 1960, but because she had been known to stay out all night on a number of occasions, it was not until Mrs Frances Constable and her husband Cecil read in the evening newspapers that a woman's body had been discovered less than 10 miles away from where they lived that they reported her as missing. That evening, Frances was brought to Braintree Hospital Mortuary to officially identify the body as that of her daughter, 20-year-old Jean Constable. At this point, you must be wondering why I've not covered Jean's case before. It feels so familiar. A young woman found murdered, her body dumped by the side of the road and left to be found by a passerby. But the reason why I've never covered it is because it's a solved case. We know who killed Jean. The man who did it was arrested the day after her body was discovered and shortly afterwards he confessed to her murder. He was tried in court and he told the whole story there and then the jury stepped out and deliberated and in under two hours they came back with their verdict. Not guilty. The murder of Jean Constable and her killer's subsequent acquittal are now remembered for one very specific reason because the man who killed her claimed that he could not be guilty of murder because he was fast asleep when he strangled Jean to death. I'm Jess Carter, and this is a Patreon-exclusive episode of The Outlines podcast.
20-year-old Jean Constable lived on Abel's Road in Halstead with her parents Cecil and Francis. She had a younger sister, 18-year-old Maria, who was married to an American airman, and a brother, 16-year-old Dennis. Described by neighbours as a happy girl who always had a smile, she loved spending money on clothes and makeup, and would fund these purchases through her job at Thames Valley Moulders, a factory which manufactured plastic toys and gramophone records, based at Woolpack Lane in Bocking. This was just one of several jobs Jean had held since leaving her studies at Halstead Secondary Modern, having also been a weaver at Courtards in Halstead, and a waitress at the Spread Eagle Hotel in the nearby town of Whittam. According to her father, she loved playing records, dressing smartly and going to dances, and would often come home in the early hours of the morning on weekends. Around Halstead, whose population was, according to one article, around 6,300 people, she was known to be one of the smartest girls in town. She had previously been friends with an American Air Force pilot who was based at nearby Wethersfield about 10 miles away from Jean's home in Halstead, a man who she was reportedly very much in love with. But the relationship had broken down in about October of 1960. It was around midday on Saturday the 31st of December 1960 when Jean told her parents that she was leaving to go with some friends to a New Year's Eve party in London. She was dressed glamorously, wearing her black skirt and white blouse with a black gabardine jacket which had a white fur collar, black winkle picker shoes with stiletto heels and a black nylon fur coat reportedly her pride and joy. She carried a black brief-type handbag. Speaking later about this, her father Cecil said, I kept telling her not to stay out so late or go away without telling us where, but she never took any notice. I never knew what she was doing. She told my wife she was going to London with some other girls to party. It's unclear what made Jean change her mind about going to this party, but her friend Wendy later told the newspapers that she and her friends thought that Jean had been persuaded by someone not to go. She said, we waited some time for her and then decided to go. Whatever it was that made Jean stay in Essex for the evening, we do know that she was first seen that evening in the Nags Head pub in the town of Braintree, just under six and a half miles away from Halstead. She was in the company of a young man, described by an acquaintance of Jean's as being a very handsome-looking fellow, almost with film star good looks. He was tall, dark-haired and dark-eyed, well-built and clean-shaven. He was wearing a grey suit, grey overcoat and a grey tie with white flecks. This was 20-year-old David Salt, an apprentice service engineer from Leicester, who was new to the area, having moved down recently for work. It's likely that Jean had only met David that day, but the two of them were getting on well together, and soon left the nag's head for the Bell Pub in Great Square in Braintree. While at the pub, plenty of people saw the two together chatting and laughing with some American officers from Wethersfield US Air Force Base. The pub was reportedly popular with airmen from the base, and that evening it was filled with people, both civilian and US military. Jean and David struck up a conversation with a man Jean knew from Wethersfield, 29-year-old Willis Eugene Boshears, Boshears was a Korean War veteran from Detroit in Michigan, 
who had been in England for the past two years, serving as an engineer fitter with the 20th Field Maintenance Squadron based at Wethersfield. Despite being married with three young children, Boshears was alone that night, as his wife Jane, who was originally from Scotland, was in air with the kids visiting her relatives for the new year. Boshears, David and Jean were seen drinking gin and orange, and Jean seemed to be in high spirits, with the trio being described variously as drunk, very drunk, tipsy, or drinking but not drunk. By 10.30pm, Boshears, who later told the police he was quite drunk by then, invited David and Jean back to his flat in the close Dunmo, an old infirmary building which had once formed part of the town's workhouse and had since been converted into 30 individual apartments. They took a taxi the nine or so miles to Dunmo, with Jean reportedly giggling and flirting with David the entire way. Once there, Boshears made them vodka and lemon squash, and they listened to music on the gramophone. Jean reportedly danced with both men, and at some point in the evening may even have been drunk enough to start throwing up, according to one source. Though, when Boshears left the room, Jean and David started kissing, and according to David's account of the night, they ended up having sex on the floor. Afterwards, Boshears gave the pair of them a tour of the flat, and he told police that he left the two of them to have sex again in a bedroom, while he sat in the living room drinking vodka. Of this, David said, I don't know how it actually came about. We were left together in the bedroom, and we had intercourse again on the bed. At some point in the evening, Boshears bought the mattress from his bed and set it up with some blankets in front of the fire in the living room. And by about 12.30, Jean, who was reportedly fully naked by this point, had wrapped herself in blankets on the mattress and gone to sleep. Eventually, David undressed and did the same, with himself on one side of Jean and Boshears on the other. After what he described as a few minutes, though, David got up and redressed, waking Boshears to tell him he wished to leave and asking where he might get a taxi from. He woke Jean, but she was drowsy and pretty well asleep, so said that she would stay where she was. Boshears saw David downstairs to his taxi and returned to the living room where he undressed, lay down again next to Jean on the mattress and claimed that he was very much affected by drink, so went to sleep almost immediately. He later told police, the next thing I remember was something scratching and pulling at my mouth. Jean was lying there underneath me. I had my hands around her throat and she was dead. That sort of sobered me up. I got scared and didn't know what to do. As he realised what he had done, Boshears picked up Jean's body and took her to the bathroom where he washed her thoroughly in an attempt to remove any evidence. He would later say at his trial, after I realised that Jean was dead, I started to cut off her hair with scissors and burned it. I guess I did that so that people would not recognise her. He then redressed her in her skirt and blouse and left her lying on the floor of the spare room. Having finished for the evening, he went back to the sitting room, tidied up a little and fell back asleep again until morning. When he awoke at around 10am, he was immediately convinced that it must have all been a dream but said in court, I went to check and I saw the clothes in the bathroom and Jean in the spare bedroom.
A panicked Boshears had no idea what to do with the body, and so instead he got to work burning any items with which she might be identified. Her handbag, shoes, stockings, red garters and suspender belt, and even the fur coat which she loved so much. He did, however, keep her wristwatch, a ring and a ten-shilling note. Still unsure as to what to do, Boshears kept Jean's body in the spare bedroom all of New Year's Day and right up until the evening of Monday the 2nd of January. In his statement to the police, he said, She lay in there until Monday night at around 11.30pm. I carried her body downstairs over my shoulder, covered with my heavy winter gear. I laid it on the back seat of my car. I drove around the country until I saw a good spot along the road which looks like sand piles. I carried Jean's body out of the car and dumped it head first into the ditch and went back home. While on his way home, he threw her ring out of the car window. Unsurprisingly, given the large amount of witnesses who had seen Jean, Willis Boshears and David Salt at the pub on New Year's Eve, it didn't take long after Frances Constable had identified her daughter's body for the police to focus their investigation on the two men. There are articles dated Wednesday the 4th of January in which the papers identify Jean and ask if anyone has any information. And then by Thursday the 5th, already they are reporting that Willis Eugene Boshears had been arrested and charged with murder. The police inquiries had very quickly turned their focus to the airbase at Wethersfield, and led by Superintendent Jack Barkway, his team of CID officers spoke to a number of airmen to build up a picture of what happened that evening. It was through these lines of inquiries that detectives spoke to a man named Sergeant Johnson, who told the officers that he'd observed Boshears on the afternoon of Tuesday the 3rd of January, and noticed he bore a slight bruise under his left eye and a graze beside it. With what they'd learned of Jean's last known movements, this was enough to warrant the arrest of Boches. There's a still photograph of him being taken from Wethersfield. He has a hood up over his face and is flanked by one plainclothed and two uniformed policemen. The images of his arrest were broadcast on the national news and one paper reported that on seeing the bulletin at her sister's home in Ayrshire, Jane Boshears commented, I wonder if Bill knows that poor guy. It did not take long under questioning from officers for Willis to begin to tell the details of that night. Under caution, he made a statement in which he admitted that he had strangled Jean, but maintained that he had only woken up after she was already dead. On Thursday the 5th of January, at a special court in the village of Castle Headingham in Essex, Boshears was formally charged with murder. Speaking in court, Detective Inspector Leonard Jevons said that Boshears handed to me certain property which he took from his pockets. This was reportedly Jean's missing wristwatch. The same article goes on to say, when Superintendent Wood made a request for Boshears to be remanded in civil custody, Major Carl B. Preston, Staff Judge Advocate at the Wethersfield base, said, I would like to request that he be remanded in our custody, adding that Boshears would be confined to the base under strict security. 
After some consideration, this request was denied and Boshears was remanded in civil custody. While awaiting trial, he was taken to Brixton Prison, but soon came down with a conveniently bad case of the flu and spent the rest of his confinement in Brixton Hospital Ward instead. Most of the timeline I've given you of the hours leading up to Jean's death comes from the statements given in court by David Salt and Willis Boshears, and it is this information which was presented to the Chelmsford Assizes jury as the case went to trial in mid-February of 1961. Among the onlookers in court were Jean's parents Cecil and Francis, and Jane Boshears, Willis's wife. Willis, who had pled not guilty back in the small court at Castle Headingham in January, stood straight backed in his US military uniform with rows of medal ribbons appinned to his chest. I've seen photographs of him on his acquittal, and he cut a surprisingly diminutive figure. He was a small man who seemed to almost disappear inside his uniform, and for a while I couldn't work out what looked off with the way he held his mouth and jaw, until I read that before his arrest he'd been in the middle of having dental work done, work which wasn't completed until after he was found innocent, and so what was wrong with his mouth was that he ha it had the set of a man who was missing some of his front teeth. As the jury heard details of what happened that New Year's Eve, one of the people to take the stand was a woman named Clara Miller, an upstairs neighbour of Boshears, whose walls were unfortunately thin. Through the floor, she had heard first the music that the trio were playing, and then later, at about 1am after David Salt had left, she swore that she had heard a woman that she believed to be Jean sobbing, as if into a handkerchief, and saying in a muffled voice either, you love me, or you don't love me. She couldn't be sure which. Countering this, Boshears said, there was no quarrel or argument between me and Jean. At no time did I make any overtures or sexual relations to her, nor did I have any desire to kill or harm her in any way. I have no more knowledge of how Jean met her death than I have told the police and the jury. Also called to the stands was the pathologist Dr Francis Camps, who was asked by the prosecutor, do you think that it is possible he could have killed her while asleep in that way? Dr Camps replied, I should think it is certainly within the bounds of improbability. My reason from my findings is that this process would take a certain amount of time and during that period the person would go through certain phases of movement and from the description of finding her suddenly dead like that, I don't think it fits in with that type of death. He would have felt her movements even in half-sleep, I would have thought, before she died. In his summing up on Friday the 17th of February 1961, the judge, Mr Justice Glyn Jones, told the jury that there were only two possible verdicts. Boshears was either guilty of murder or of nothing at all. He said that if Boshears strangled Jean while asleep, then it was not a voluntary act and that he was entitled to be acquitted. And if the jury were in any doubts as to whether he was asleep or not, he was also entitled to be acquitted. But, if they were satisfied that his account of having been asleep and waking to discover his hands on Jean's throat and that she was already dead must be rejected, then he could be convicted. After the trial, there was talk that it was this particular piece of direction from the judge, which meant that the jury felt compelled to find Boshears not guilty of murder. 
though the judge did apparently also ask the jury, have you ever heard of a man strangling a woman while he was asleep? Does there exist any record of such thing happening? It was reported that Justice Glyn Jones did not shy away from letting his feelings on the subject be known. Despite this, the jury took just under two hours to return their verdict of not guilty. On February the 18th, the day after the verdict, as Boshears prepared to take three days' leave, he stood with his arms around the shoulders of his wife Jane and told reporters, now all we want to do is relax. There has been a complete, full reconciliation between my wife and I. I like British justice very much. I have no idea what the result would have been if I had been tried at an, by an American court-martial. It is marvellous, but I was not sure I would get off. I was prepared for the worst. I found an interview from the same day with Jean's parents. It described how her mother stood in the living room of their home in Halstead, arranging a pot of hyacinths. Through tears, she told the reporter, these flowers were Jean's last present. She was such a good girl, and now she's gone. Oh, why is it nothing can be done about it? Her father Cecil added, It just seems fantastic to me. This American admits to killing my daughter, and now he's off on holiday. I don't know anything about the law, but it all beats me. What I don't understand is why my wife and I have to suffer, and we have suffered, while this man goes free. As a postscript to this episode, I want to tell you that a few months after his acquittal, Willis Boshears received what has been described as a less than honourable discharge from the US Army. He moved back home to America, where he settled permanently with his wife and their soon-to-be four children. According to his obituary from March the 22nd, 2018, his hobbies included baseball, basketball, bowling, riding his motorbike, playing guitar, pool, playing the slots, spending time at his camp in the woods, spending time with friends and gardening. He was known for his quick wit, sense of humour and pleasant personality, always willing to lend a hand to anyone who needed assistance. He could type at 88 words per minute and due to his sharp mind, he could have lengthy conversations on a variety of subjects. I don't normally give an opinion, but this time I feel compelled to. Dr Francis Camps made it perfectly clear that he didn't believe it possible that someone could strangle a woman to death and remain asleep throughout. I'm inclined to agree with the science. What do you think about this case? Because, for my money, Willis Boshears spent two days in his flat with Jean's body, coming up with a risky but ultimately successful defence. And because his claims could never be disproven, he went on to live a long and full life, having gotten away with murder. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. 